You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, family, good morning. Good to see all of you here. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for joining us digitally. My name's Jeff, one of the pastors here. This is your first time with us. Welcome. We are so delighted to have you here. Grateful that you would choose to worship with us this morning. If it is your very first time, we'd love to give you a free gift this morning. So it makes it a gift. It's free. And uh, you can get that over at the info desk, a sippy cup or a tumbler or a water bottle, whatever you want. If it's your first time, that's our gift to you. Uh, If you'd like more information about our church or there's something we can be praying about for you, there is a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out and then put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Uh, Before we jump into the passage, just a couple other reminders. It is Taco Tuesday on a Sunday today. So it is Taco Sunday. Yes, Max is very excited. And uh, that is at 11.30 right out here. Uh, So great taco truck that we've partnered with for years. They're going to be here. I would encourage you to come out, hang out, get some tacos. It's going to be fun. And then a second reminder, our membership class is coming up this Saturday September 18th, 9 to 1, here. And if you have been attending Creekside for a while and have never made the decision to formally join the church, I'd really encourage you to consider coming. Uh, It's a four-hour class, and and part of the reason we do it is because this is such a low-commitment culture that we live in, and the church is a high-commitment community. And so it's really important as we think about our life together that we understand what does it mean to just be a member of God's people and a member of the local church. So if you've never done that, highly encourage you to come. Uh, You can connect with Rachel Butler, email her. You might see her in person out here, and uh, she can get you registered for that. So uh, a while back, I had a really frustrating day. It was the day where nothing went right. You had a day like that, right? Nothing went right. I went to work. Nothing went right. It was a brutal day at work. Then I came home, and things were crazy. My children, you wouldn't believe this, they were acting like children. (laughs) They were making messes. It was unbelievable. And so I'm following them around the house, picking up their messes, and then they're following me around the house, making messes of the things I had just picked up. And Things were tense between me and the missus. And so I decided to go outside and I said, you know what, I'm going to do some laundry and I get my laundry together and I go to the laundry machine and I press start and the dreaded F20 error code shows up on the laundry machine. And you know, at that point, I look up to the heavens and I just went, ah! You ever done that? You ever just looked up at the heavens and, and, and I realized something, that I was angry. And not just angry at life, I was angry at God. I said, God, you are distant, you are disinterested, you don't care about me. You ever felt that way? You ever verbalized that to God? See, in that moment, I realized that my view of God was off, that I was viewing God wrongly in the situation. Now, in my experience, those moments Like, wow, I'm viewing God wrongly. God isn't distant. God isn't disinterested. He's actually vitally interested in my life. That moment when I catch myself viewing God wrongly, that is a rare moment. Often I don't realize 
when I'm harboring those kind of feelings toward God or viewing God that way. It's rare that I catch myself doing that. And yet Scripture says that all of my actions are rooted in my view of God. And how I view God will determine how I act. What I do is predicated on what I believe God to be like. That's why A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The reality is this. All the time, I have this operating idea of what God is like. It's just the operating system. And and I might have true beliefs about God. I might have false beliefs about God. But either way, those beliefs profoundly shape how I feel, how I respond, how I plan, what I ultimately do. And according to James, one reason I vacillate in my devotion to God is because I vacillate in my view of God. We're in a new series in the book of James, and James addresses a problem that has beset God's people for centuries, and the problem is this, double-mindedness. Being double-minded towards God. See, every follower of Jesus is tempted to live a double life. We say the right things, we perform the right rituals, we do religious stuff, and yet our temptation is to reject Christ's lordship over certain parts of our life. To look like Christ followers, but when it comes to the nitty-gritty of life, we don't want to follow Jesus in certain areas. That's double-mindedness. And today, James gets to the root of our double-mindedness. Why are we double-minded in our devotion to Jesus? Because, James says, we've got double vision. Our view of God is inconsistent. See, theoretically, we believe the right things about God. If you asked us, we'd say the right things about God. But in the trials of life, when the rubber hits the road, we don't live consistently with what we say we believe. That's the problem. And instead, we believe lies. We have a false view of God. And here's what's challenging, that this thing happens to us at a subterranean level. These beliefs are operating below my conscious awareness And so a question to ask is this, like, how do I know if I'm viewing God wrongly or rightly? How do I know when my view of God is off? And then how do I correct my eyesight? That's what James helps us to do in this passage. He gives us the cure for spiritual double vision. That's what we're talking about. And so let's look at this passage, but but before we do, let's ask for God's help in understanding it and seeing it clearly. So Father, would you give us Eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to perceive, hearts to believe, wills to obey what your word has for us. Spirit, be our teacher. Would you help us to see Jesus as he really is, the true and faithful God who is only and always good in every situation. Jesus, we ask it in your name. Amen. As we've seen, James is writing to believers who are suffering, who face trials. In verse 12, he says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Back in verse 2, James said, consider it all joy. You're talking this morning. I'm, I'm excited. It's good. It's going to be a good morning. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because trials grow us. It is God's sovereign goodness to use trials to refine our faith, to grow our faith so we can consider it joy. And now in verse 12, James speaks of the ultimate joy that awaits us after we endure. When we endure, it demonstrates that we have passed the test. See, in the Bible, saving faith, genuine faith, is tested faith. And so when our faith gets tested and we go into a trial and come out the other side with our faith intact, it demonstrates, guess what? You're on the road to glory. You've got the real disease. (laughs) Your faith is growing and there will come a day where you appear before God and the tested genuineness of your faith is proven and God will crown you. And the crown James has in mind here is probably the the laurel wreath that would be given to an Olympian athlete after they'd completed a race. So you think of running the race of life. There are trials. There are tests. You make it to the end, and God says, here's the crown. Honor, glory, forever. That's the finish line, family. That's what awaits you on the other side of the trial. Here's the problem. It is easy to lose sight of the finish line in the middle of the race. Finish line looks non-existent when you're going through a trial, doesn't it? And when you are in the trial, the easiest thing to lose sight of is the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the greatness of God, and the trial looks way bigger than God. And James is very clear, trials don't necessarily benefit us. It's how we view trials that benefit us. See, I can view a trial as a test to pass, or I can view a trial as a temptation to sin. Those are the two options. Either a a trial is a test to pass to grow my faith, or it's a temptation to give in to sin, to give in to doubt, to check out the trial, right? It makes you better or it makes you bitter, depending on how you view it. But how you view trials is, James says, largely determined by how you view Is God good? Is God wholly good, only good, and always good? And are those things still true when life is bad? That's the gut check for us because James' point in this passage is this, that I cannot be single-minded in my devotion to God if I'm double-minded in my view of God. I I won't be single-minded in my devotion to God if I'm double-minded in my view of him. See, if I don't trust in God's complete goodness, I will be double-minded. Trials won't benefit me. All right, so how do you figure out if you've got a false view of God? This is what James helps us do. First, he helps us diagnose a false view of God. How do you know if you're viewing God falsely? And then second, what's the cure? How do you develop a true view of God? That's what James is helping us to do, and we need this if we're going to make it in the race God has us to to run. So, let's start with the diagnostic. You know, how can you tell if you're viewing God wrongly? How do you know if your view of God is a little off? 
a little blurry. Let's look at how James diagnoses his reader's faulty view of God here. He says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. See, James readers, they're going through trials, they're suffering, and James wants to correct a misconception we might have in the midst of a trial. Now, think about what James has just said. He says that God allows trials, right? And trials test our faith. And that means that that God is sovereign over our trials. In fact, throughout Scripture, you read of God testing his people with trials. Now, you hear that, and you might draw this kind of conclusion, okay? Here's the wonky thinking James is trying to address. Okay, well, God, he lets me go through trials. He thinks my faith needs to be tested. Well, then God must be the one who tempts me in my trials. That's how he tests me. He gives me these evil desires, and then I have to overcome those desires. But wait a minute. If that's the case, God is really messed up, isn't he? He gives me evil desires, and then I have to overcome them? Like, God is rooting for me to fail. That's what God's doing? Well, then why would I turn to him when I'm tempted if he's the one tempting me? You see, this is a big problem. In the midst of trials, you can begin to believe that God is distant or disinterested or even devious, right? That he's, he's trying to, to ruin your life, and that's a big problem. And James' emphatic response is, don't give in to that kind of crazy thinking. He says, you're not viewing God correctly. And then he gives them the dose of truth here. He says that God is not the author of temptation. Why? Because, James says, God cannot be tempted. God is aperostos. That's the Greek word. He is untemptable. In other words, James is saying that God cannot be enticed to do evil. The Apostle John says, God is light and in him is no darkness. There's nothing dark in God. See, it's not simply that God perfectly resists temptation. It's that God is completely unenticed by evil. He cannot do it. That's how great and pure he is. And here's James' logic. Listen, if God never desires evil, how could he cause you to desire it? How could he put in you a desire that he himself is never going to have? Why would he? That's not who God is. That doesn't make any sense. You see how James is counteracting their faulty thinking. So so yes, God sovereignly puts us in situations that test our faith, and yet in those situations, he's not rooting for us to fail. In fact, he is the one who will help us succeed. He's the one with the wisdom, the grace, the power to help us overcome, to make us grow. And all of that is an evidence of his goodness. Not that he's bad, but that he's good. Let me, let me give you an illustration. And it might be lousy, but hey, I tried, okay? This is, this is how I think of this, okay? Um, so we have an oven in our house, like most of you. An oven is a very good thing. Controlled fire is a very good thing. But an oven's a dangerous thing because it's controlled fire. And we have a son, Jake, who loves fire. We didn't teach him to love fire. It's just in him. He loves fire. And when he was like two or three, he would take a dish towel and open the broiler, put it in there, close the broiler, and walk away. And we had no idea. And then we'd turn on the oven. And five minutes later, he'd be in there going, fire, fire, fire. And you, 
and the oven was on fire, and you open it, whoosh, right? You get a backdraft, and, and I had to come in with the fire extinguisher, and, and that happened more than once. More than once. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't say, well, that's it. We need to get rid of the oven. Why? Because the oven was a test that Jake needed to pass. The goal wasn't to get rid of the oven. It was to teach him to use it properly. Do you know what else I didn't do? I never went up to Jake and said, do it, Jake. Throw the dish towel in there. Right? That, that would not help him grow in the test. No. See, I'm not a bad dad because I want my son to use the oven properly. I'd be a bad dad if I enticed him to misuse it. See, God is not evil because he puts us in a situation where we're tested. God would be evil if he was rooting for our failure in that situation, but he doesn't. He does not entice us. So what does? Well, James says the problem isn't with God, the problem is you. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. One commentator describes this as the life cycle of sin. I think it could be the, called the death cycle of sin. <laughs> because paradoxically, what sin ultimately produces is always death. And what... James is focused on here is this reality that there's no darkness in God, and so if there's any darkness, it's generated within us, and it's a three-stage process, and this is how sin always takes root in our lives, and sin starts with stage one is evil desire, evil desire. The reality is this, that we do not come into the world as blank slates. We are descendants of Adam and Eve, and like produces like. Rebels beget rebels who beget rebels against God. And that's why my parents never taught me to disobey, right? They had to teach me to what? To obey. I, I did not come out of the womb, and then they said, you know, Jeff, you're a little too on the nose with this whole obedience thing. Let me teach you how to rebel. No, I was born a master at rebelling against authority. Our fallen nature produces desires. It just generates them. John Calvin said it is an idol-making factory. We're just generating false gods all of the time. We don't need to be taught that. And James says each of us has his or her own evil desires that entice us, which means this, that your enticement to sin is going to look different than mine. That, that Satan works in tandem with our flesh to, to sort of tailor-make desires that he know will get us. Right, like, so for me personally, like, I mean, there are things that tempt you that just don't tempt me at all. Like, I have never been tempted to blow all my money gambling, ever. No desire to do that. I don't look at that and go, ooh, maybe, no. But there are a lot of other things where I would love to blow my money, and it would be sinful. And that's my temptation, right? Our nature produces these tailor-made desires to undo us, and they are overwhelmingly strong. That's how they feel. The, the Greek word is epithumia. That means an over-desire. <laughs> Lust is how it's often translated. And desire isn't bad, but fallen nature produces fallen desires, these over-desires for things. And it's as if the desire begins to lead us. Right? We're like a fish swimming along, James says. And then we see the bait, and that lures us, it entices us, and then, hoof, we're dragged away. Now, 
you will be tempted. That's temptation, is seeing the bait, right? Maybe the bait is someone cuts you off on the freeway. And you feel that thing in you to react. That's temptation. That's not sin. You're always going to feel temptation. Jesus endured temptation. The, the temptation in temptation is to react to the temptation, to, to give in to the temptation, to, to, to think about the suggestion. And that leads to stage two. You flirt with temptation, you dwell on the sin, and then this thing gives birth. And what it gives birth to is sin. You get cut off, you feel the anger, you dwell on revenge and think, you know what, I'm going to speed up, get in front of him, cut off, and slow down. Or I'm going to give him the universal sign of displeasure, right? And the moment I give in, when temptation gives birth to sin, what immediately follows, right, we've got the, the grandparent, that's desire, you got the parent, that's sin, and the, the, the child here is always death. What follows is death, and, and death is disintegration of relationship, it's decay, it's destruction, it's the unraveling of God's good world. That always happens when you sin, it always pages the wage, it always produces a baby, and it's the baby of death. Here's James' point. When we are under pressure, when we face a trial, that's what reveals our view of God. See, when we are pressed down, that's when the fault lines in our faith begin to show. For, for James' readers, it was, I'm encountering a trial, well, God must be tempting me. God is screwed up in this situation. And for us, it might not be that. That might not be the false belief. But often, our reactions in situations reveal what we functionally believe about God. Whether we believe who he is who he says he is, or whether we believe a lie, right? All of us have formal beliefs about God, the things we say we believe, the things if you asked us to write a paper on what we believe about God, we would write those things, we'd give scripture references, you know? And then there are the things we functionally believe about God. When the rubber hits the road in life, do we believe those things? And there is often a disconnect between our formal beliefs and our functional beliefs between what we believe in theory and what we believe in practice. So how do you know when there's a disconnect? Well, often it, we can diagnose this in our reaction to situations. So for example, if I feel overwhelming anxiety and I'm constantly ruminating on the future, do you know what the subterranean belief is often? That God is not in control. God is not great, right? God is not the general manager of the universe, there's a vacancy in that position, and I need to take it. You know, God, you can do a little better job. I've got things from here. Thank you very much. I need to worry about the future because, God, you're not doing enough good, good enough job worrying about it for me, right? How about fear of people? When you please people, when you falsify your own preferences with people, the subterranean belief is often that people are big and God is small. God is not glorious. God is not the one to be feared. People are. My boss is. How about lust, when I just have to have this thing, God says no, the subterranean belief is that God withholds what I need. That God is not good. That, you know what, if I followed God perfectly, I would miss out in life. 
How about self-justification? Do you just hate getting criticized? Do you lash out at people or do you just despair when anyone says anything critically about you? Sometimes the subterranean belief is there is that God does not defend me. That, that God is not gracious. Like we believe we're justified by faith. That means God thinks you are innocent in his eyes, blameless in Christ. Well, if that's true, if you lash out at people who criticize you, well, then whose report do you believe? You believe that God says you're justified or do you feel like you have to justify yourself all the time? Defend yourself. Often despair, not always, but often is this belief that, you know what, God is done with me. That, that, that God has no more redemptive plan, that God is not faithful. So the question to ask yourself is, how are you reacting in situations? What subterranean belief does that reveal about God? Because your, your functional belief about God, when the pressure's on, it will be revealed. What is how I'm reacting, how I'm reacting, reveal about the God I'm believing? Does that make sense? Just think about those six categories and which one stood out to you. That's diagnosis. But we can't stop at diagnosis. We have to go from diagnosis then to looking at the cure how do you develop a true view of God? Well, it starts with reminding ourselves of who God really is. That's why James goes on to say this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived about what? Do not be deceived about who God really is. Don't harbor in your vain imaginations these ideas about a God who is out to get you. Or a God who has abandoned you. Don't dwell on that. Instead, believe what? That every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Don't be deceived. Check yourself when you get into that way of thinking and remind yourself of what is true of God. That any good thing that has ever happened to you has been from the hand of God. Everything. The, 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 the blessings that were hidden in the pain, all of those things, they all come from God, the Father of lights. What, what James is getting us to think about is Genesis 1 through 2 here, right? We looked at it a few months ago, where everything God creates, it says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. God created the stars, the sun, the moon, all of these planetary bodies, it's all good. And every good thing in our lives is from him. And yet, God is, is even more consistent in his goodness than we might at first imagine. He says here, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here's what James wants us to think about. How even with the heavenly bodies, with stars and the sun and the moon, there's changes. There's seasons. There's sunrise and there's sunset. But in God, that never changes. His goodness never changes. He is absolutely unchanging. Like God is not in a process of becoming a better God, okay? He's not in process like the rest of us. He's not growing. He's not learning from his mistakes and, and getting a little better. No, God is perfect, always was perfect, always will be perfect, is the standard of goodness, and we grow into that realization. He does not grow. He's unchangingly good. 
So, so what that means is this, right? The clouds might obscure the rays of the sun. No trial in your life obscures the light of God's love toward you. He's, he's always good. For a lot of us, right, when nighttime comes and the, the sun goes down, that's when all the anxieties start. That's when we, we start to worry, right? Like, like the sun never goes down on God's goodness toward you. God doesn't hide his face from his people who are in Christ. God does not turn them away. God does not push them out. In fact, God to his people in Christ is only always good even when life is horrible. Because God is always working out his redemptive purpose. And you have to get that deep into your bones because otherwise you will be double-minded toward God. Here's the key thing that James is saying is that because God is single-minded toward us, we can be single-minded toward him. That God's will for us is only and always good. And if there's a trial, it's discipline for what? For our good. And if there's hardship, it's ultimately for our good. That God never stops willing the good of his children. In fact, even in our sin, when we rebel against God as his children, his heart is drawn out to us even more because he sees us in our pity and misery and might send hardship, but it's to win us back and bring us back. God is only and always good. And until you are convinced that God is single-minded in pursuing your good, you won't be single-minded in obeying him. Because there's always that thing lurking that maybe God isn't as good as he claims to be. And so reminding ourselves of God's character is what changes our view of trials. You might say, Jeff, what does that look like practically? If I believe God is always good, how will it shape then how I do go through a trial? What would it look like to succeed? I'm glad you asked. Because James gives us a beautiful example of this in verses 9 through 11. He says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, you will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty, I hope I have another slide. There it is, perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here's what James is saying to poor and rich Christians in the church. You know what a trial is? Money. <laughs> when you're poor, it's harder to believe that maybe God is still rich toward you, that he's good toward you, and there's a whole theology in our culture built around the idea that God's goodness will always be manifested in giving you financial blessing, and so if you're rich, God loves you, and if you're poor, eh? And you see how James flips this completely on its head, and he's talking to poor Christians, and he's talking to rich Christians, and he says, do you know how good God is to you? Already, to the lowly brother, he's talking about people who are financially poor in the church. He says, boast in your exaltation. Boast in the sense of exalt, glory. Why are the poor exalted? Here's why. 
because of what they already have in Christ. Right, 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus died to make us spiritually rich. So, so what do you have in Christ already? Well, Paul says you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual gift God could give you. We have the Spirit of God living in us. God gives us contentment. That's why Paul says, Philippians 4, that, that I've learned to be content with a lot of money. I've learned to be content with a little money. In Christ, there's a love, a presence, a power that you can have contentment when you have a lot or a little. In Christ, we have a new father who loves to give us good gifts. He loves to provide what we need and delights in us and delights to make those needs. That's the exalted status we have as his children. Remember, that's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, which one of you, if his son asks for him bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a servant? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus says, even if you're a poor Christian, you're already rich because of the Father you have in heaven who delights to give you what you need when you need it. Right? Um, you know, I, I've never wanted to give my kid a snake when they ask for bread. Like, even bad parents don't do that. Right? It's like, you want some Panera bread? How about a python, right? That's, that's not what God does. We ask him for good things. He knows what we need and gives us exactly what we need. That's the father we have. In Christ, we have a new family, new brothers and sisters, a new social web to care for us and where we can be cared for. And guess what? In Christ, you have the best 401k plan in the history of the universe. Because what's your inheritance in Christ? It's his inheritance. And what does Jesus get to inherit? The universe. Jesus will reign over the universe. So guess what? You get to reign with Jesus even if you're poor. And so you've got trillions in God's 401k for you in the future. You have all of that in Christ already. That's why James says you can boast in your exaltation even if you're low in the eyes of the world. Even if you don't have a lot in Christ, you have infinite resources. And to the rich Christian, he says, why don't you boast in your humiliation? What's he saying there? He's saying that even if in the eyes of the world you're esteemed, all that money is going to vaporize. All that money is like the flowers in Palestine that would beautifully rise up for a day and then the scorching heat would come and just vaporize them. Boom, they're gone. Right? I, you know, what do they say? That the, the, the one with the most toys, you know, the one who dies with the most toys wins, right? That's what they say. I mean, you could just say, well, the one with the most toys dies. <laughs> they still die. And the poor and the rich don't look very different. In fact, they look exactly the same in the end. You don't get to keep your stuff and you give it to selfish, bratty children who waste your stuff and ruin it and don't use it the way you'd want to be. It all it fades, it all erodes, it all looks stupid to cling to in the end. And so the rich can say, you know what, all these things that make me esteemed in the, the world, they're nothing compared to Christ. Do you see how, how 
Thinking on how God has been good to us changes the way we view trials, changes the way we, what real wealth is, where real joy comes from, where real contentment is. That's his point. So maybe you're asking at this point, and this is where we'll land, is, Jeff, you know, how can I be sure that God is always good? Well, the ultimate proof of this is the gospel. That's why James ends with the gospel. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that's the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. You know, of all the good gifts that the creator gives us, there is no gift greater than the gift of new creation. That God makes us new in Jesus. And and James says here that it's of God's own will that he made us a new creation. In other words, it was God's good pleasure to send Jesus to die for you, to rise for you, to save you forever, and to make you the first fruits, this picture of a redeemed world that is coming. The the gospel says this, that in eternity past, the, the Father set his affection on you and said, you're mine, I want you. And then he chose his son, and his son gladly died and paid an infinite cost to get you. And the Spirit comes and joyfully lives inside you to secure you for God and to give you an imperishable inheritance in heaven. And a father who would not spare his own son, a father who loves you so much that he would give you his son, I would not give you my child. I wouldn't. I wouldn't give you any of my three kids. God gave you his only kid for your salvation. A God who loves you that much. Paul says, how will he not also with him freely give us everything? See, I think Tozer was wrong, actually. It's shocking to say. He, he's mostly right. But he's a little wrong. The most important thing about us is not what comes into our minds when we think about God. The most important thing about us is what comes into God's mind when he thinks about us. And the gospel proves that God is unshakably committed to our good. And how much more could he do to prove it? See, the cure for double vision is this. Maybe you've had double vision. They used to have you do the little drill with your eyes, right, where you you put the pencil out and you you wait for it to get blurry and then you focus your eyes and and you, you try to focus on the one thing until your eyes align and see the same thing. That's what all of us have to do with the gospel every day of our lives, is that we look at Jesus on the cross. We don't look at our circumstances. We look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. We look at Jesus until we're convinced that that's how good God is, that he would give us Jesus. And that clarifies and brings our eyesight into alignment. And then the God revealed in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is the God we follow who is only and always good. Let's pray. So, Father, if you did not spare your own son, but gave him for us, Lord, there is nothing more you can do to demonstrate your faithfulness or goodness to us. So, God, I know uh, that a lot of my family here are um, going through pretty miserable times. Lord, would they taste your sweetness and goodness? 
Help them to believe in the midst of this that, that you are not looking down with displeasure at them, but that in Christ you say to each of us, you are my beloved daughter, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Lord, it is your joy not only to send trials, but to deliver us, to cultivate our faith in you. Help us to believe that your ways are always good. And thank you, God, that even when we waver in our devotion toward you, you do not waver in your devotion toward us. Jesus, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.